The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And as we finish our sitting time and maybe begin to move a little or stretch a little, just that maybe lingering sense from the sitting time that everything that we need to develop and fulfill our practice is right here. <laughs> we don't need, in a, in a way, better teachers or teachings or better life situation, different life situation. This really is liberating to realize that the needed ingredients for developing more love, more freedom, more wisdom in life is here, are here and now. <laughs> kind of, it cuts both ways though, because it means we don't have an excuse anymore. <laughs> but I guess that's the price of growing up a little. Anyway, it's so nice to be with everybody. Thanks for showing up. And especially anybody who's new today, a big welcome. And uh, those who have been coming know there's not a lot of time for Q&A at the Sunday morning programs. Um, but we do have regular practice check-ins at the center on Sunday afternoon when Fricky and I, uh, Wynn is my, both my spouse and also the co-founder and one of the great Dharma teachers at the center. And uh, so Wynn and I lead a group 4.30 Central Time every Sunday. Um, where you can ask questions and just have practice check-ins. And then uh, Stacy McClendon and I, when I'm in town, join Stacy on Tuesday at 12 noon, both the Sunday afternoon and the Tuesday 12 noon with Stacy and myself, or online on Zoom. And uh, Shelley meets with the community on Friday mornings. I think it's 9 o'clock Central Time. People are welcome to join in, and Ramesh Sairam meets every other Saturday. I think it's the first and third Saturday at 10.30 Central Time, and you can find all the links uh, for that online on our calendar. But you're also welcome to send in questions that you have from a Sunday talk that I've given, and just send them to the center. If you have my email, you can send it to me, mark at org. maybe Jessica can put that in the chat. Otherwise, just send it to the center and Gabe or somebody will forward it to me. And then I'll weave your question into the next week's talk if, if I can. So we're looking at aditana is the Pali word for resolve, resoluteness, determination. Now again, just notice what happens. I mean, in our own heart, we can feel quite like we failed at being determined and resolved and resolute in our lives. And uh, yeah, don't want to go there anymore because it's been in the past a setup. Like we really were enthusiastic. We really thought something's going to change. And then what did we get? Failure, betrayal, more of the same, same old, same old. And it can be really... Uh, disheartening. So part of the reason it's such a useful conversation for us and with your Dharma friends about like what does skillful resolve look like? 
How has it worked well in your life? When it hasn't worked well, making a resolve, feeling resolved. When it hasn't worked well, what what has your discernment revealed? Like what was maybe some of the missing ingredients when there was a resolve that kind of led it to be a setup for disappointment? And I've been linking, uh, for those who weren't here last week, and the talk last week, of course, is on our YouTube channel. You can always find them there. And almost always the talks are also recorded on dharmaseed.org, which is a great resource with so many wonderful Dharma talks. But one of the things I was doing last week is linking up resolve, resoluteness with this deepening capacity to sense what our deepest desire desires are. What does my heart most deeply desire? And uh, I mentioned, you know, uh, Rob Rubea, uh, who passed away not too long ago, maybe a year and a half ago, wonderful teacher from, mostly taught at Gaia House in England, but um, one of our sort of wise teachers in this insight meditation lineage, this early Buddhist lineage. And uh, I remember in his talk on desire, true desire, understanding or true desire, just sort of reminding us it's, it's a wild ride. Like when we, when we practice and bring due respect to understanding our wholesome desires, it's... Uh, yeah, it can come, it's a little bit of a wild ride. Like as if, there, as if there were only one thing we could do with our life. And by really committing to this one thing, we're willing, not that we have to necessarily, but we're willing to shut all the other doors and just do the one thing that the heart truly desires. And again, it doesn't mean we won't do, we'll probably still feed ourselves, but we're centering this one desire. Maybe like in the guided meditation today, this very strong resolve, I don't know much, but it doesn't make sense to be disconnected from the way it is. I was remembering um, a story that gets told a lot by the nuns and monks in the Thai forest tradition. Um, Somebody, I don't know if it was Ajahn Sumedho, but one of the Western Thai forest monastics had a conversation with Ajahn Buddhadasa. I think this is how the story goes. And asked, if you don't know, Ajahn Buddhadasa is a very well-known Thai meditation teacher and Buddhist monk who died maybe 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And and somebody had asked him, a Westerner had asked him, you know, what's the most important thing? And it might have been in the context of, like, if you could only have one thing, what would you have? as a sort of Dharma support. And uh, interesting answer, he said, I'd have a medallion around my neck and on it, it would read, this is the way it is. <laughs> That's a great answer. This is the way that it is. And I'm guessing with Ajahn Buddhadasa where that answer came from, is this kind of resolve, this resolute, determined resolve not to forget this is how it is now. This is the way that it is. 
And it isn't the words, of course. It's this heart movement where the heart understands the way it is is relevant and I'm going to express its relevance by opening, by actually being interested, by actually feeling what's here to feel, by actually allowing my defenses, my tendency to distance and be distracted and armored in this and that way, allowing that all to at least begin to fall away so that it's, the heart is undefended and open and sensitive and touched moment by moment, ceaselessly touched, moved by the way it is. That's real exposure. And it's so, and it, you know, the funny thing is it's trustworthy because it's so counter what we do in life. I was just thinking partly because it's the holiday season and you see these things, you know, it's like part of what makes media operate these days is they have articles about the things you should, you should probably want to buy. <laughs> the best of this and the best of that and the 10 of this and the 20 of this. And, uh, yeah, and, it, and I just notice, I like noticing what really captivates my mind. And uh, so I notice, like, this is a week or two ago, I think, it was like the best all-purpose tool. You know, some of you can relate. And it's like the tool that will do everything. I'll never be wanting, you know, because I will be right there on my belt and perfectly crafted and elegantly designed to be able to solve every, any problem I could conceivably come up against. And it's, it's like, uh, you know, in an unfortunate, strange way, this, my heart, this is what I want. This will solve. And it could be like a retreat, like, oh, if only I could be on retreat with Ajahn Sushito, or if only I could be on retreat with so-and-so. Then, you know, and not just an ordinary retreat, but a special retreat where all the conditions were perfect, then my problems would be solved. If only I could learn how to eat a reasonable amount of food at a sitting, you know, or whatever it is. So we get captivated by these different resolves, but we kind of, they're, they're they're not coming from the deepest, most integrated place. They're basically looking for a quick fix. And so part of the this reflection on resoluteness, aditana is the Pali word, Ajahn Sushito describes it or defines it as the most complete establishment, like establishing our, our heart on what's most relevant, most important, and willing to take the consequences of sensing that this is what's most important. So as I'm talking today, and as you're reflecting on this in the weeks ahead, you know, just to kind of be curious about well, what does my heart really want? What is the deepest love or aspiration? How do I relate to these deeper aspirations or loves? Are they dangerous in some way? 
what's actually worthy of my wholeheartedness. In a way, that's how you know there's resoluteness, is your heart feels happy to apply itself, to act on what you're resolute about. Like there's that carry-through energy to follow through with it. Then you know that there's some resoluteness there. And, and then the question that I mentioned from Rob Ubeya's talk, you know, am I willing to tolerate the pain, the setbacks, the doubt, the burning that might come with this committedness, this being really all in? Am I willing to take whatever comes? And again, so just acknowledging that in different ways we have a troubled history with resolve. <laughs> and But that doesn't mean, like, what's our alternative? Never to be resolved again? <laughs> I'll just wait for good stuff to happen. Or I'll just presume there isn't any good stuff to happen. And I'll just be content with being despairing or something like that. There aren't really any good alternatives to being all in. And I might have mentioned this last week in the first talk, you know, this little bit of wisdom I, I remember hearing or reading from Pema Children a long time ago, where she described refuge, you know, which is a big topic in Buddhism, understanding what is a refuge. And she described it as... Uh, not holding back, I think is the way she wrote about it. Not holding back is our refuge. So what we have to fear is all the way we justify not being all in. Now, this doesn't mean we're supposed to be all in with everything. That is its own kind of violence and setup, right? Where we think we have to do everything. We've got to be a perfect parent and a perfect partner and a perfect Buddhist and have a perfectly healthy body and perfectly healthy mental health and on and on and on it goes. And then we end up, it's like a, I think it was a quote from Thomas Merton that if we try to do everything in every way, it becomes an act of violence, self-violence. So part of understanding resolve and resoluteness is this, I think, painful discrimination yeah, that may be nice. I'd really like to be a good knitter, you know. Or, I, I mean, this is actually true on some level. I, I really love music, but I've never really given it any time. And I think it could have been a real joy in my life to have more music in my life and to sing or to play or whatever, but just to be more, have it more part of my life. And it just never got to the top of the list. And there are many things like that. I would have loved to have learned how to play tennis. <laughs> I love sports, but, you know, I never got around. I mean, I played a few times, but, you know, never got around to sort of that being a high enough priority or gardening or so many relatively wholesome things. Who knows? There may be time. But, but it, when it comes right down to it, something else has been more important wanting to connect and understand what the heck is this heart all about? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And in particular, what's going on here about suffering and the end of suffering? That's always been of greater interest. So my resolves 
and then the cards fall as they do, but my results have always, mostly as an adult, in the long run at least, been about deepening my relationship with the heart, with the moment, with the way it is. Because it's always felt liberating and most relevant and something that I just couldn't stomach living without, in a way. And this brings me to, I, I might have mentioned it briefly last week, but there are these this important list in the Buddhist teachings, one of the wings of awakening, these 30-some um, practice instructions organized in these lists, like the five faculties of faith and energy and mindfulness and um, concentration and wisdom, you know, it's one of five of the 35 or whatever it is. But one of the lesser are the four bases of success or the four roads of fulfillment. And the Pali word is iripara. And uh, the first of these four bases of all spiritual success is chanda, which is desire which is sort of, you know, because a lot of times it's true that a desire with identification and especially desire for sense experience, desire to become somebody, desire to be done with stuff, with attachment, those desires are the cause of suffering. But does that mean we throw desire out, out the door? <laughs> no. Desire is the animating force of all life, both hell and heaven and release. You know, like if we had to divide up the possibilities for a human, for us humans, we can have hell realms, which we often have in our lives where things are really hard to bear. We can have heavenly times where things are really sweet. And we can have times where we experience some very authentic release, the heart not bound in any way. At least little flavors or intuitions and these, uh, we can desire all three of these, right? We, in funny ways, we legitimize hell realms. We justify them. Of course I'm angry. Of course I'm upset. Of course I'm self-righteous. You know, of course I really want this, right? And even though it's hellish to really want something, to not be satisfied because I don't have this, or because I'm attached to my fixed view, or because I'm really angry and want revenge, we, in a sense, I mean, it's not necessarily with a lot of wisdom, but we consciously live out those hell realms. We choose them. We justify our anger, our greed, our delusion. We grab on and we hold on and no one can talk us out of it because it just feels so right when we're angry, when we're lustful, when we're whatever. Even though when we see our friends identifying with greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, we could probably in some moments at least say, it's not going to end well. It's not even well right now, but it's certainly not going to end well. But it doesn't matter. Because part of desire with attachment is we create hell realms. But desire can also lead to really heavenly states where we really do the hard work of harmonizing with other people, understanding how we cause harm, 
learning how to be generous to ourselves and others, to share, you know. And we can create, doesn't last forever, but we can create really beautiful states that will last for a while, where we feel really like we belong and we're harmonizing with others. Heaven realms. And then we can also desire the heart's unshakable release, or however you want to language that for yourself. Whatever you most deeply intuit is possible for this heart to love unconditionally, to be at ease with the wildness of life, to be deeply intimate and unafraid. So we could talk about it in different ways. I like the unshakable release, the complete and full unbinding of the heart, on the releasing of the heart. I really like that kind of description. And it's really appropriate to have a desire for that, even though it's going to burn us. <laughs> it's going to make for some difficult choices. Watch one more entertaining movie or do my daily sit, you know, for example. Here's what Ajahn Sushito and then Ajahn Jayasaro, two of our senior Western Buddhist monks in the Thai forest tradition, have been very influential in the Dharma coming here to the West. Um, both of these folks are English, uh, British, um, but practiced a while in Thailand and England. And So Ajahn Sushito says, desire is an eagerness to offer, to commit, to apply oneself to meditation. And we should think of meditation in the broadest sense here, like not just being uh, with the breath, but really planting wholesome seeds. Like think of meditation as that, continuously planting wholesome seeds, relating wisely, kindly to the present moment, and therefore planting wholesome seeds. So he said, again, he says, Desires and eagerness to offer, to commit, to apply oneself to meditation. It's called chanda. It's a psychological yes, a choice, not a pathology. In fact, you could summarize the Dharma training as a transformation of tanha. And tanha is the Pali word for craving. It actually means to thirst, right? So it's desire with attachment. So you could see the whole path as the transformation of tana, craving, into chanda. Right? Chanda is this, he says, is the willingness of the heart, the heart that's willing. And we need that willingness of the heart because we have to go against the stream of our conditioning. And Ajahn Jayasaro, this other British Buddhist monk, he wrote, Western presentations of the Buddhist teachings have often led to the understanding that suffering arises because of desire, and therefore you shouldn't desire anything. Whereas, in fact, the Buddha spoke of two kinds of desire, the desire that arises from ignorance and delusion, which is called tanha, craving, and the desire that arises from wisdom and intelligence, which is called kusala chanda, dhamma chanda, or more simply, chanda. Chanda doesn't mean this exclusively, but in this particular case, I'm using Chanda to mean wise and intelligent desire and motivation. 
and the Buddha stressed that this is absolutely fundamental to any progress on the path. So that was part of our homework this week and this coming week too, is just to get a better sense of chanda, this willingness to do, this willingness of the heart, and to, and to begin to discriminate, is this activity or this force that I'm attracted to, is it worthy of this powerful force of desire? Because we shape our desire by that discernment. What is of most value? Because this really changes, you know, a lot of time we just presume that life has to be, or spiritual practice has to be this bitter medicine. I have to do something. I don't want to do it. I don't want to sit. I don't want to listen to Mark talk about the Buddhist teachings on Sunday morning. But I know that I should. How can we reform those attitudes? So maybe, maybe there's another way to plant these wholesome seeds. Like if your sitting meditation practice has gotten, has picked up a lot of these sterile, heavy, goody-goody attributes, maybe it's time to shake it up a little bit. Doesn't mean you give up on your spiritual training. It means that you have to maybe reform so it really feels like something, not that you have to do, but that you get to do. I want to do it. This is the most important thing. And that's really up to us, you know, that, um, yeah, how to access desire around what really matters, how to, I mean, it isn't like we figure it out one time. It's like a living process all the time. Is this helpful? <laughs> if it's not helpful, why am I doing it? Why am I using desire and leaning in here? Why not? What do I really want to lean into? What do I really want to show up for? What will have lasting value? And, you know, a lot of the time, of course, we get confused between the long-term and the short-term because some things have short-term real, actual short-term benefits, like we cook something we like to eat, and there it is, 15 minutes later, and we get this really pleasant sense experience but long-term costs, right? And other things have long-term benefits, but some short-term costs. And often the short-term cost is, I don't get to watch the entertaining thing. I don't get to do this, I don't get to do that, because I really care about this thing that has long-term benefits. But here it is, interestingly, the things that have long-term benefits, we, if we know that, that means that in this moment we can sense that. And that provides a short-term benefit. So, for example, when we show up on Sunday morning or whatever you do to stay connected to your practice, studying, connecting with teachers, doing your own reflection, connecting with your Dharma friends, to whatever degree that you practice being aware that this is wholesome, this is planting good seeds that will bear good results, 
that itself is pleasant. That feels good now, not later, not in the long term. It feels good now. But we have to, it's maybe a little bit more subtle than eating apple pie or watching a funny TV program. But because it's subtle doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't deliver. It just means that to notice that it's delivering, the heart has to be somewhat settled. If the heart is really agitated and gross in that sense of not being sensitive, that sensitive, then it's not going to notice that these things that really deliver in the long term deliver also in the short term. We have to find the joy, the calm, the ease, the confidence, the love. We have to sense it here and now. And this is really the role of aspiration. I'll talk more about that next Sunday. And um, aspiration in particular in terms of the refuges that we take around the solstices and equinoxes, which is next Sunday. It's pretty close to the solstice. So we'll do the refuges and precepts, but I'll talk about aspiration and how important it is to have something that our heart really aspires to and to feel supported by our aspiration, not supported later, but supported now. And it means this willing letting go of doubt, wavering, indecision. It's like, I don't know if you remember this, but Joseph Goldstein used to quote from that book that kind of made a splash by Jan Martel, Life of Pi. I'm sure some of you read it, also made it to a really wonderful movie. I don't think this was in the movie, but in the book is this quote that Joseph Goldstein used to use in some of his Dharma talks. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Right? It doesn't make sense. And this is sort of, because we've been burnt by our resolves and our resoluteness and our enthusiasms and our like hopefulness, we've given up on it. But life just doesn't work without this energy of desire and resoluteness. We have to use it. We just have to use it wisely. We have to, because uh, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the yogic mystical tradition, there are different, different pathways. There's sort of yana yoga, which is the yoga of inquiry, and there's karma yoga, the yoga of service, and there's uh, hatha yoga, the you know kind of purifying the energetic system with the postures and the breathing practices and other kriyas, other cleansing practices. And there's a lot of others too, not a yoga. But one of the yogas is um, bhakti yoga. Maybe you've heard that, the devotional practice. And it's always in the yogic mystical tradition, it's said it's the fastest way to awaken and the most dangerous way to awaken. Because that power of the heart, you know, devotional energy, we can be misled by the next, the new and next shiny object, you know, the new and next shiny teacher or lineage. And then we hop around. It's like, oh, this person or this teaching or this. 
but we still need that energy, that devotional energy. It's just messy, <laughs> but we need it. So, and some of you will be more naturally devotional in your sort of temperament, others less so. But all of us have to find it and put it to work. Because um, it's what allows us to go against these floods. You know, the, all of the paramis that we've been studying on Sunday morning since, I don't know, maybe July or something. Now we're on resoluteness. But there, as uh, Ajahn Sushito says in his subtitle of his book on this topic, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. And the asawas, the floods of the heart, sense desire, wanting to become somebody, and wrong view, ignorance or self-view. These are the floods. Selfing is always flooding our mind. Wanting something is always flooding our mind. Wanting to become somebody is always flooding our mind. So we're cultivating a resolve. We're cultivating this devotional energy to not be dependent in any way, to not grasp in any way these floods, to not believe in them, to stop feeding them. This is what's actually worthy of devotion, of our motivation, of our steadfastness, like applying our mind, no more, no more being swept away. Here's what the Buddha said about devotion. He said, one should not neglect the Dhamma. So this is sort of our lineage, lineage from our wise elders, human beings before us, who had lives and hearts and bodies like we do, who learned a thing or two. And they've, you know, and we, we are the fortunate, I mean, it's imperfect, but we are the fortunate recipients of these wise teachings. And so one should not neglect what our wise elders are pointing out to us. That's the first determination. One should guard well the truth. This is the truth of our own experience. What is my life taught me? Because we should be distilling cause and effect. Every time we fall in a hole, we should be distilling cause and effect. Every time we feel lighthearted and loving and relatively free, we should be distilling the truth of that. Like what was there that allowed the heart to be relatively free, or what was there that caused that hell realm that I spun around in for two days? What wrong view, what wrong understanding was there? One should guard well the truth of our experience. One should be devoted to withdrawal. And that's an interesting, and here I believe the Buddha is talking about withdrawal from what life has taught us doesn't help. This doesn't really go anywhere. Why am I inclined to do this again? Maybe I could put this down. And the last one is, one should train only for peace. And this is that unbinding, that releasing, that unshakable release of the heart. This is the taste of freedom, the heart that is deeply unburdened, burdened, deeply free the heart that has no weight. 
And the Buddha says, this is another passage from the Buddhist teachings, Friends, abandon what is unskillful. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful was conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then he continues, Friends, cultivate what is skillful. It is possible to cultivate what is skillful. If it were not possible to cultivate what is skillful, I would not say to you, cultivate what is skillful. But because it is possible to cultivate what is skillful, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. If this cultivation of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, cultivate what is skillful. But because this cultivation of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. So I mentioned, I think, at the very end last week that we're, we can really use this simple formula. Um, it's as if, you know, we screamed out to our lineage of wise elders, you know, the beneficent forces of the universe. We screamed out something like, I don't know what to do. I want to be free. I want to be happy. I want to be peaceful, but I don't know what to do. What, you know, what is worthy of great resolve in my life? What would our wisest self or wise elders, what would they say back to us? What would you say if some young adult who really respected you, was very sincere, pulled you aside, found the right time and place and said, I don't have a clue how to be a human being, how to be a happy human being, you know, you've been around for a while. What has life taught you? What would you say? What would we say? And the Buddha, you know, because people basically said that a lot during his 45 years of teaching way back when, and his basic instruction, especially to lay people just getting started, was dana sila bhavana. Dana, you might remember that word means these circles of giving and receiving freely, generosity, contentedness, the capacity to let go, to be content with what we have. That was the first, that's dana. Sila means this, cultivating this moral sensitivity. Like, I really care about not harming. This is a joy to care about not being complicit to causing myself or others harm, even in the most subtle ways, how we're part of oppressive forces in our society that we're just oblivious to mostly. But because we care about non-harming, sila, we're finding joy and upliftment. So when we sort out our recycling, it isn't a burden, it's like, it's a joy to take care of the earth in this little way. 
when we study the roots of racism in our own heart, it's a joy. It isn't a burden. Oh God, I'm a white person and I got to kind of do due diligence to sort of the roots of racism, one more thing to do in my life. But to find like, no, this is a joy to be unpacking all the ways that the mind, the heart, isn't in alignment with living in harmony and taking care of one another. And the last one is bhavana, just means cultivating the heart, the stability of awareness, understanding this is how it is, having that medallion around our neck, this is how it is. I never want to be far away from you, honey. You know, this is our true devotional object, the present moment. And not just like theoretically the present moment, but this ongoing, this fresh and ongoing sense, ah, this is how it is. This is how it feels. This is what's moving. This is being known. Because it's only here where we see the seeds of suffering and the seeds of release. It's only if there is this present moment awareness is there any deeper learning. That's why it's really what, more than anything, what we resolve for. And it's what makes us a better human being, you know, a better partner, a better citizen, a better parent, a better friend. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.